Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm very pleased to begin today by thanking fellow saloners Steve A. and Spatial Computer, LLC, who also sent a very generous donation to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. I truly appreciate your help. As you know, there's no advertising in these podcasts, nor are there ads of any kind on our website, uh, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. And the reason that I don't allow advertising on our sites is that if I did, well, then the advertisers would require tracking cookies and uh, the rest of all that mess that comes with advertising. Recently, uh, I turned down an offer of $500 a month for uh, advertising on the site, which, uh, well, it was tempting because, well, in three months it amounted to more than this entire year's donations so far. <laughs> However, uh, for me, that would take away from our community-supported model. And while the extra money would be great, well, we're getting by okay without being a commercial program. And if you're like me, uh, well, you're really tired of being assaulted by ads everywhere. So, for our fellow saloners who have made these generous offers to advertise here, well, please don't take it personally when I turn you down. As our longtime listeners know, I like to think of producing these podcasts as my hobby, and so I think that it's best to rely on the occasional donation, such as Steve A. and Spatial Computer made to uh, keep us going. Now, today we get to hear from another old friend, Eric Davis, whose talk at the first Palenque Norte Lectures in 2003 was featured in my third podcast from here in the salon. Podcast number one was a talk that I gave at Mind States in 2001, where Eric was the conference moderator, I should point out. And podcast number two was the next-to-last talk that Terrence McKenna ever gave in Palenque. And uh, there's a reason that Eric was the next one in line. Rather than repeat something that I've already said here, I'm going to play the first few minutes of podcast number 49, which I posted 10 years ago this September. And that podcast featured Eric's 2006 Planque Norte lecture. And here's how I introduced him back then. Thanks to Brian, we all now have a Burning Man gift in the form of a clear and complete Palenque Norte lecture, and it's only fitting that the first such recording is of the talk that Eric Davis gave on Friday afternoon. The big tent at Theon Village was packed, the heat was almost unnoticeable, and I don't even remember there being much dust in the air. In short, it was a perfect afternoon on the playa. Well, I can't remember exactly what I said when I introduced Eric. The point I tried to make was that without his support, enthusiasm, and help in organizing the first of the Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man in 2003, this lecture series, and probably these podcasts, would never have gotten off the ground. Eric was the first person I contacted after returning from the 2002 burn with an idea for this lecture series. And since I was new to the Burning Man community, I thought I'd first better ask an expert before trying to organize a theme camp to hold the talks. 
You know, what if what if no one would come to a lecture in the middle of the afternoon in the middle of a desert and during the time normally spent resting up for an all-night party? <laughs> now that I think about it, I'm surprised Eric d- just didn't laugh me off, but but he didn't, and to be honest, I really wasn't surprised. I'd first heard about Eric from Terence McKenna. At the time, I was working on my book, uh, The Spirit of the Internet, and I was asking Terence about one of the concepts that I was writing about when he said, before you write another word, you should read Eric Davis's new book, Technosis. And those of you who read my book know that I not only took Terence's advice, but I also benefited greatly in my research, thanks to Eric. And I guess it's kind of a sad footnote, but I think the last published interview of Terrence, at least the last one I ever read, was the final interview in Wired that uh, Terrence gave to none other than Eric Davis. Well, I guess that's kind of a roundabout way of introducing today's program. After we hear Eric's talk, I'll give you some information about his new book, Visionary State, which he mentions briefly in this 2006 Palenque Norte lecture that he titled Pharmacology and the Post-Human Future. And we'll begin with Eric commenting on that first series of Palenque Norte lectures in 2003. Hey, welcome. Yeah, that was a, a very uh, interesting decision on my part because I had been coming to Burning Man more or less regularly uh, since 1994. And it, even though I'm a, a writer and I did write about the festival in 1995, I wrote the first uh, kind of national article for the Village Voice that really kind of introduced the festival to, to a larger world outside of the super underground. Uh, I'd always resisted otherwise uh, talking or writing or getting involved in that whole world. I came out here to kind of lose myself. and So that was a real pivotal year uh, because there weren't really spaces like this for many, many, many years. There were small classes that people would give in their camps, but the idea of really ho- having a lecture space was really significant. You know, And a lot of things in Burning Man evolve uh, over time and new forms emerge, new needs emerge that are responded to with new technologies, new approaches and you know it's constantly evolving and in some ways devolving. It's sort of both are going on at the same time. And so for me the, the introduction of these kind of spaces was both an evolution and a devolution. It was a devolution because this is a space of reflection, of analysis, of discussion, of talking. In a way it's a step away from the, the pure chaos we also seek here. Of course we can have them both. Uh, but it also represents uh, the, the maturing of the community, the recognition that we're not just a little bubble, a pure Taz out here in the middle of nowhere, but that we're uh, uh, involved in a larger culture. There are very pressing issues, and it's a great opportunity to come together and connect and talk. Interestingly, at least to me, Eric Davis was born in the summer of 1967, the summer of love. Obviously, uh, we didn't know one another at the time. In fact, uh, as he was being born, I was on a Navy destroyer in the Pacific Ocean, making my way to Vietnam, where I'd spend the rest of the year fighting with people with whom I had no quarrel, which, uh, sadly, is uh, something that this country continues to force its young people to do. So the chances of us eventually meeting and working together seemed to uh, be very slim at the time. 
But as I was thinking about this just now, I had to ask myself how an old Vietnam vet and a newborn baby ever did get together in the first place. Well, it all began in the summer of 1998 when I attended a workshop led by a guy named Terrence McKenna. And one of the first things that I heard Terrence say was that in his opinion, the best resource available at the time in regards to all things psychedelic was a big book called the Psychedelic Resource List, which was edited by a man named John Hanna. Then in January of 1999, at the Entheobotany Conference in Palenque, Mexico, well, I met John Hanna there for the first time. Later that year, I attended the All Chemical Arts Conference in Hawaii, where John and I began to get acquainted. I was working on my book, uh, The Spirit of the Internet, at the time, and while talking about it with Terrence, who, well, in addition to telling me to read Eric Davis's book, Technosis, he suggested that I hire John as my editor when it was finished. I took the advice, and the following spring, John edited my new book for me. Now, John is a man of many talents, and in addition to being an editor and a publisher, John is also the person behind the famous Mind States conferences. Fortunately for me, uh, in May of 2001, when John produced Mind States 2, he asked me to be one of the speakers, and the MC for that event was none other than Eric Davis, and that's where Eric and I first met. The following year, I attended Burning Man for the first time, and on my way home, I decided to organize a theme camp for the following year that would recreate the vibe of the Planque conferences that had been held in Mexico during the uh, last eight years or so of Terrence McKenna's life. I decided to call our theme camp Planque Norte, and since I didn't know very many of the movers and shakers in the psychedelic community at the time, I got in touch with Eric, who, uh, well, he seemed to know everybody. As they say, the rest is history. And speaking of history, I should also mention that if you want to listen to Eric's interview with Terrence McKenna, which took place over several days not long before Terrence's death, you will find those recordings in my podcast number 262 and 263, which actually was the last time that we heard from Eric here in the salon. And those podcasts took place in the spring of 2011. And at the time, Eric was deeply involved in pursuing his Ph.D. from Rice University's Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism program. And now, at long last, Eric's formal studies are completed, and so we may now call him Dr. Davis. (laughs) However, for us here in the salon, he's still just plain Eric, our fellow saloner and psychonaut extraordinaire. And right now, he's going to tell us something about a book that many of us have read, but, well, I, at least until now, never actually understood very well. Thanks, everyone, for coming out under a dark and stormy night. And uh, thanks to Joanna and the folks here at Morbid Anatomy Museum. I just came here the last time I was in New York, and I I love the place. They had an amazing exhibit. Um, So tonight I'm going to talk about the psychedelic book of the dead. I uh, just received my PhD, so I'm now Dr. Davis to you. (laughs) And uh, uh, it's just a weird space as I kind of drift back into uh, the freelance underground writer, talker guy uh, after the experience of the academy, trying to do something with a lot of the work that I did, and the main project I did is a book called High Weirdness, or a dissertation called High Weirdness, Visionary Experience in the Early 70s, which I'll be turning into a book this spring. 
this talk derives from another project I did from a term paper I did in a Buddhism class called, and I called the Psychedelic Book of the Dead. And so usually I like to talk without text, um, but because there's a lot of quotes and there's a lot of information, I'm going to be kind of moving back and forth between uh, a version of this work that I, this research that I did and some extemporaneous discussion. Uh, but I'd like to start out with a, uh, a non-academic prelude. The first time I smoked DMT, um, and it was uh, over 20 years ago, not terribly far from here, um, I, you know, my, my guide left the room, and I sat back with maybe the second full breath, don't quite remember, and as I started to come on, before all the high weirdness began, I was struck with an overwhelming truth, one of those overwhelming truths that come upon us at times. And it was not so much a truth as a recognition, which was, now I understand, now I know why people spend their entire lives preparing for the moment of death. And then all the weirdness started. And this has really stayed with me. In fact, it stayed with me more than almost any kind of content or visionary encounter or alternate dimension or weird alien or bug or goddess or whatever that happens in those psychoactive realms. Uh, a strange sense that the moment of death is a kind of uh, hovers over us and is something that calls us to, to transform, calls us to consider to work with it, to processes, to practice in light of this moment. And I want to emphasize that I say this not because I have any conviction or certainly any lasting conviction that there's something beyond the moment of death. I have no such conviction, nor do I think that this experience provided that. What it did provide was the sense that there's something in the actual process itself, whether or not my whole life flashes before me or I suddenly grok the totality of the cosmos or whatever it is, even if it's just the last 10 or 12 seconds as my brain shuts down, it's of such extraordinary import that it kind of reflects back through the entirety of one's life and is sort of a, a call to treat uh, what the Zen guys call the great matter of life and death. And it's that great matter that motivates my research here, which is sort of on a somewhat more scholarly, historical, cultural dimension, but it's really animated in some sense by this, uh, uh, by this conviction that this is an important thing to work with. So uh, in, I think it's like, a, it's like the sort of a 1980s Webster Dictionary I was looking through, and one of the weirdest sort of loan words that they have in this dictionary is bardo which they define as uh, the intermediate or astral state of the soul after death and before rebirth. Which is a decent enough uh, definition, although it's very interesting to note the occult overtones of the definition. The word astral comes really from theosophy, from this idea that we have an astral body or there's an astral plane, a plane of kind of spiritual material uh, above our physical plane. So it's already kind of an interesting indication of the way that this idea of the bardo, drawn from Tibetan Buddhism, uh, plays a role in uh, Western esoteric imagination. Um, the source of this popularity is this very, very popular, successful book, uh, translated first by Evans Wentz in 1927, um, The Tibetan Book of the Dead. 
Uh, and it's drawn, the, the materials that he translated and kind of redacted are drawn from a whole cycle of texts, uh, of, of tantric texts that are used most essentially, although not entirely, and we'll get to that, to ritually guide the dying and the dead through these bardos or intermediate states uh, after uh, the, the loss of the body. Uh, the cycle was traditionally considered a terma text or a discovered text, meaning that the fellow who compiled them or discovered them, uh, I think around the 12th century, Karma Lingpa, uh, discovered an earlier text that was written by the great wizard sage Padmasambhava, who's the most important figure in the Nyingma lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And there's this sort of way that uh, kind of mode that Tibetans uh, Tibetan tr- religion has, which uh, from a historical point of view, you would say allows them to make changes and add new things under the authority of the greats who have come before by discovering a magical text written by these figures from centuries earlier, which is what happened uh, in this case. Um, and then Evans Wentz sort of translated and repackaged this material. He didn't actually translate. He worked with a Tibetan translator. But he himself was kind of an interesting Figure. He was uh, a scholar of sorts. He went to Stanford. He did his dissertation on fairy lore in uh, Celtic countries, a, a big fatty with a lot of very good information in it. But he was also a theosophist. Uh, so he kind of had, he was one of these one foot in scholarship, one foot in sort of seeking and weirdness. And you should never trust people like this, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> And, and you can kind of tell even from this picture, he's got a little bit of uh, he's got a little bit of tood. Uh, and so even here, though, he's kind of sort of adopting the guise of uh, a, an Asian person. In some ways, in many ways, he actually kind of transformed the cycle of texts, which I'll go into more detail on. He sort of transformed them in some ways into a more Western esoteric uh, kind of operation. At once, uh, an art of dying and a science uh, of death. And I should mention also that the texts that were originally called, the, the traditional name for this collection of texts is Great Liberation Upon Hearing in the Intermediate State or in the Bardo. And he translated it, he changed the name to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, basically because Wallace uh, Budge's 1895 book, the, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, was such a hit. So he was like, yeah, this will be a great name. And it worked. It was an, it's been a, it's an incredibly successful book, went through many, many uh, printings. And um, one of the things that, that, that Evans Wentz emphasized in this kind of theosophical frame that he put around these Tibetan materials is this idea that the death state that's described isn't just the actual physical death, but sort of represents or suggests another kind of death experience that we might have in life. And he compares it explicitly to the kinds of initiation ceremonies that were, say, a characteristic of the Greek mysteries in the age of antiquity when people would go through some kind of harrowing uh, 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 cosmic transformative performance and they would come out the other end having felt like they had gone to the uh, to the world of the dead uh, and returned. And the, this model, which, you'll, as you will see, plays an important role in understanding the psychedelic dimension um, 
of this text was supported by some of the other materials that that uh, Evans Wentz's uh, introduction came along with, notably texts by Lama Govinda, who was another character like him, one of these sort of scholar Westerners who were, was pretty smart and they got totally into it and kind of faked their way through mysticism and sort of wrote these books that are at once scholarly and a little goofy, uh, and uh, an important text by Carl Jung. Uh, and Carl Jung made the same kind of argument about the value of this material, not for understanding what actually happens after physical death, but as some kind of model of an archetypal psychological uh, process. So uh, the book has been translated many times. We already see the way that it's moved and shifted uh, uh, as this, these Tibetan materials went through the hands of, of Evans Wentz. But unquestionably, the most uh, bizarre and uh, uh, peculiar transformation of these texts was the psychedelic experience. The, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was published in 1964 on University Books, which was responsible for putting a lot of uh, occultism and esotericism into the hands of ordinary folk outside of, outside of the university. Of course, we have the, uh, the, the authors here, Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner and Richard Alpert. Uh, at the time they were putting this book out, they were all still at Harvard. Leary and, and, and Alpert were both teaching there. Uh, Metzner was getting was a grad student who was getting his PhD. By the time the book, I think, actually came out, they had all been booted out. Uh, I think Metzner left on his own, uh, you know, for his own reasons, but um, they had been uh, kicked out. And basically, what the book does is it goes through uh, the description of the de- of the after. Uh, life process laid out in these traditional materials where you go through these various stages, which I'll get to uh, later in the talk. And they sort of just took that as a map for the, for the sort of typical psychedelic experience. And they actively used the text. They used Evan Wentz's text. They remixed it out of their own stuff and created a kind of manual that would help people, help guide people through uh, psychedelic experience, mostly at this point LSD. Now, the first and kind of most obvious thing to say about this process that they did, uh, particularly in our current moment with so much more concern about how Western scholars interact with non-Western sources, peoples, and cultures, is that this is an enormously brazen, crass act of appropriation, of just ripping something out of some other context, which in some sense it was already had already been done by Evans Wentz to a certain degree, but the, the actual text is in, in there with, uh, with Evans Wentz. Uh, and so this is kind of the first and most easy way to talk about this text. And indeed, the few academics who write about it, most academics don't really pay much attention to psychedelic history, but the few ones who have looked at this in the, in the context of understanding Buddhism in the West just say, ah, this is just appropriation, it's just silly, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's worthy to be ignored. And basically what my talk and, paper and research is about is suggesting on the, that despite the goofiness of the appropriation and the problematic quality of it, is that Leary, and I'm just going to say Leary because it's easier than saying Leary et al. or Leary, Metzner, and Alpert, and it is mostly Leary's book, that he was actually incredibly insightful and that he was productively engaging uh, psychoactive potentials that already exist within the Tibetan concept of the bardo. So what we're going to do is sort of look at the concept of the bardo, how it grows within Tibetan materials, and the way in which he redeployed this for a different 
uh, context uh, in a way that I think is a lot more interesting than you might get if you just look at it from uh, the outside. Because, you know, and part of the reason to do this is just the fact that this is now part of our culture, the connection Tibetan, death, bardo, psychedelic is sort of, while somewhat esoteric, woven into our kind of popular cultural memory around uh, psychedelics, around LSD, around Leary, around Buddhism. You know, all those fearsome monsters in the Tibetan tankas remind us of psychedelics. We don't really know what to do with that remind. You know, where, what is that? Why, why does that work? So it's really part of our understanding and experience of um, uh, Tibetan religion is this weird psycho- psychedelic uh, underpinning and just to kind of show you a little uh, uh, taste of this, I'm sure some of you have seen Gaspar Noe's movie uh, Enter the Void. Um, this is a, sh- a short clip of it where the uh, first person drug dealing Oscar meets his friend Alex, who has encouraged him because of uh, Oscar's interest in, in DMT and other psychedelics, has encouraged him to read uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You're tripping, man. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell? Yeah, you were pretty fucked up. I popped some, some tabs this morning and, and just took a hit of the MT before you came, actually. Shit. Looks like a good day. Yeah, and the day isn't over either. Hey, do you think Bruno has anything stronger than DMT? Come on, you gotta fry your brain, man. You should finish your book of the dead. That'd be a lot better. You wait until you die, then you get your big trip. That book is still confusing to me. How would you explain it? Um, it's a little bit hard to explain. So, basically, uh, when you die, the spirit leaves your body. Actually, at first you can see all your life like it's reflected in a magic mirror. And then you start floating like a ghost. And uh, you can see anything that's happening around you. You can hear everything, but you can't communicate with the world of the living. Um, and then uh, you see these lights, all these different lights of all different colors. These lights are the doors that pull you into other planes of existence. But most people, they actually like this world so much that they don't want to be taken away. So that's when the whole thing turns into a bad trip. The only way out is to get reincarnated. Does it make any sense? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. What's the bad trip? Well, the bad trip is people have all these nightmares, you know? People are like, yo, crazy. All your fears become reality. And it scares the shit out of you. It's like, what's that to your mind? That's what you want to do with everything, right? At that point, you wish you never died. Okay? Some darker yellow lights appear to you. They represent all these couples making love. Um, and then, the light comes out from their bellies, and if you get closer, they give you a vision of a possible future life. And you choose the light that suits you the best. You know, end up in a womb, and you're reincarnated, end of story. And basically, 
you do this forever and ever until you manage to break the circle. You follow me? So you mean we're stuck in this world for all of eternity? You mean there's nothing better out there? Hey, you know what? I can't wait to see your sister. She looks really beautiful, man, you know? So uh, even though it was a little difficult to understand, you get sort of the basic kind of a good model of how this material has been translated into, into cultural memory. You sort of see yourself, in, in, but you can't really interact. There are these strange lights that lead you to different dimensions. There's some relationship with these lights. Uh, there's a kind of nightmarish ca- characteristic. You want to get out of it. It terrifies you. And the, the easiest way to get out of it is to, you know, is to sort of tune into a couple making love, and then you sort of see the life that is prepared for you, and you zip back into uh, incarnation not to, not to deal with it. You know, it's a decent uh, thumbnail sketch. Uh, and it's one of the things that's very interesting to do, and one of the things that I've, I've done in my research is to look at, uh, you know, I'm no Tibetan scholar, but I've been drawing from other people who, who actually know how to do this stuff, uh, is to see where, this, where these ideas come from. Where does this model of the bardo actually come from? And it's not, it does not all originate in Tibet, but we'll see that a lot of it does. Um, um, there's a, uh, an example of this kind of bardo state in earlier uh, Indian texts, and I'll read you just a little quote of it, give a flavor of what it's like. When the time of his death is approaching, he sees these signs. He sees a great rocky mountain lowering upon him like a shadow. He thinks to himself, the mountain might fall on top of me, and he makes a gesture with his hands as though to ward off the mountain. Presently, the mountain seems to be made of white cloth, and he clambers up the cloth. Then it seems to be made of red cloth. Finally, at the time of his death, as it approaches, he sees a bright light, and being unaccustomed to it at the time of his death, he is perplexed and confused. He sees all sorts of things such as seen in dreams because his mind is confused. And so this is already an Indian model of what happens in this, in this intermediate state that gets translated and re- elaborated uh, when it uh, goes into, um, into Tibet. This bright light becomes the clear light that in the, in the kind of classic Nyingma account that goes into the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you encounter twice upon first dying, and then it's usually just too much to handle. And so you go into the next bardo, the bardo of encountering reality, where you encounter these procession of, of uh, cosmic gods and terrifying monsters, and you get you sort of go through this uh, uh, cycle for a bit, and then you get into a more uh, kind of a, a bardo called the bardo of becoming, in which you have a kind of virtual body equipped with senses, and you sort of deal with this bizarre world you're encountering, kind of dreamlike space, and then you're torn apart by the god Yama, a kind of judge who tears you apart in an act that very much resembles, if you're familiar with classic Siberian shamanism, very much resembles the way that the shaman is sort of ritually destroyed and put back together uh, by beings of the other world. And then in this bizarrely Freudian, I mean, the language is straight Freudian. You like, you see a couple making love, you, and it's written from a male perspective, of course. You see a couple making love, you want to have sex with the woman, and you're pissed off at the guy. And there, zip, you go for, for another round. Now, what I want to do is to talk about this concept of the bardo and talk about how elastic it is in the Tibetan context. 
that it, ten- that it doesn't just refer to this period between the death of the physical body and then the rebirth in a new body, that it actually is a kind of plastic idea that can be applied to different things. So initially, the idea of the bardo just refers to this after-death period, but then people begin to elaborate. So Naropa, some of you probably heard of Naropa, an 11th century saint. Uh, He says it applies not just to this period between birth and death, but also uh, to dream. So, which is already a very interesting thing because we're starting to see the way that different parts of the life can be seen as a bardo. The uh, Karmalingpa tradition that gives us the Tibetan Book of the Dead further expands this concept uh, to take in meditation and the dying process itself. So one scholar writes, by the first half of the 12th century, there had already been such a remarkable proliferation of ideas inspired by the generic notion of a period of transition between two states of consciousness that seemingly every significant experience or phase of existence could be divided into a, a, a series of bardos. And this is part of the idea that we're talking about, that there's something very productive about the notion of the bardo, of an in-between, of shifting between consciousness. So the importance with dreams, for example, is not that dreams take you to another world and you encounter spirits and you, well, you know, or, or you, you, know, you, you fly or whatever you do in the dream. Really, the important part of the dream is the fact that you wake up from it. And in that waking up from the dream, there is this split, this kind of montage, a cut between different states of consciousness. And that cut can be elaborated and applied to all sorts of different things in life. In later accounts, in different uh, Buddhist accounts of it, uh, uh, the, the orgasm is a bardo. Even sneezing is a bardo because it's all about these sort of intense shifts of consciousness. And part of the, the kind of model, kind of the mind frame, the world view of this tantric approach is to see the way that these little bardos resonate with or replicate the bardo. And there's a great uh, Robert Thurman quote where he says, he describes this kind of tantric worldview as a method of compressing eons of lives into one life, eons of deaths into one death, and eons of betweens, of bardos, into one between. So this is, uh, you know, I think one of the ways to, to look at it. And where you really find this, what's really interesting, is that if you look at the texts themselves that are already gathered together in, the, in these Tibetan materials, initially it looks like they're all just about things that are read to people on their deathbed or who are already dead, as if the dead person can still hear the reader and be guided be reminded by the voice of the guide why all these terrifying, completely unexpected things are happening to try to keep them from losing their shit. So maybe they can get out on the clear light, and if not, then maybe they can recognize the inherent emptiness of everything and and transcend that way. So that's the sort of main model. But there's already a very interesting ambiguity in the text themselves. If if you look at them closely, you discover that some of them actually aren't designed to be read to the dead. Some of them are actually protocols for meditation. Some of them are actually recipes for tantric visionary meditation for people who are alive. And the basic idea here is that as a living practitioner, uh, I would imagine going through these stages and I would recapitulate or simulate this process on my own as a living person so to better prepare myself for when it actually happens. So there's this very interesting tension 
in the text themselves, and that I'm going to suggest has a lot to say to the psychedelic appropriation of the Bardo concept, that there's a kind of tension in the text themselves between the thing itself and the simulacra of the thing itself, or the run-through, the simulation, the, the you know, like a, like a whatever, like a, 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 you know, an airplane simulation or something, a, a rehearsal, a tantric rehearsal. And so you find this kind of running throughout the things, which kind of already makes you, you know, the, the question of appropriation then changes kind of uh, uh, slightly. And it changes a lot when you start thinking about psychedelic experience. Which, you know, I, I forgot, as usual, I forgot to do it. So this will, here, here's the, an image of the, uh, the bardo of reality. So you, you, miss the tr- you miss the clear light, and then you get to see all of these marvelous gods and terrifying monsters. And so this is a, a, a very interesting um, element of the Tibetan model that does not have anything to do with Indian Buddhism, as far as we can tell. So, and I'll get into a little bit more, well, if it's not from Indian Buddhism, where does it come from? We'll talk about that in a little bit more. But uh, let's talk a little bit about psychedelics as death simulation. So if you go into the lore and you look at, let's say, the first LSD trip that we have on record, well, you know, presumably this person did not really know what LSD was like. Presumably they didn't have some idea in their head that LSD could produce a death trip, but they had one nonetheless. This is Albert Hoffman describing his, one aspect of his trip after he got home from his bicycle ride and made his way into his living room. This is what he experiences. Dizziness. Visual distortions. The faces of those present appeared like grotesque colored masks, strong agitation alternating with paresis, with frozenness. The head, body, and extremities sometimes cold and numb, throat uh, dry and shriveled, a feeling of suffocation. A bummer. Occasionally I felt as being outside my body. I thought I had died. My ego was suspended somewhere in space, and I saw my body lying dead on the sofa. So here we have in the sort of, you know, foundation stone of the LSD trip, we have this death rehearsal. Uh, in, in Huxley's Doors of Perception, though it's not the main part of it, it's not the part that most people talk about or remember, he also goes through a kind of dress rehearsal rag, uh, one that significantly specifically mentions the Tibetan Book of the Dead. At one point, um, he's confronted by a chair, and this terrifying chair looks like the Last Judgment. Quote, or to be more accurate, by a last judgment which, after a long time and with considerable difficulty, I recognized as a chair. Uh, then he remembers the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and he remembers the idea that the soul shrinks away from the clear light to shelter in the comforting darkness of selfhood as a reborn human being. And this is what he feels like he's doing. He's pulling away. He can't handle it. And later on, his wife asked him if, he, if there was some way that he might have been able to resist his own resistance. And he says, only if there was somebody there to tell me about the clear light. I couldn't do it myself. One couldn't do it by oneself. To Tim Leary, who in the, by the early 60s, before he gets kicked out of Harvard, is a successful professor of psychology, uh, interesting work focusing on personality typologies and social agency. So... Uh, he, he took mushrooms in, in Mexico, but what's important here is his first uh, LSD trip uh, through the medium of um, Michael Hollingshead's uh, mayonnaise jar of LSD. He described it as the most shattering experience of my life. So he's at home in Cambridge by himself. His family's there. 
I mean, he's the only one on acid. Uh, he, he idiotically, later, trippers would, no, don't do it, Tim. He turns on the TV. And the TV tells him directly that he's dead. You're dead. You're dead. Uh, and he, so he gets away from the TV and he starts going through books, you know, because he's a nerd. He's a, you know, an intellectual. So he starts going through books and he sees the way that every word kind of devolves into the origins. It's sort of primordial origins of language. And every time it's the same morpheme. Death, death, death. <laughs> Everything was illusion, he said later, the experience, even love. Not long afterwards, he delivered a talk at, at the International Congress of Applied Psychology. And I don't remember the name of this talk, but it's really, really interesting and important to read. I mean, Leary had an enormous influence on the way people thought about psychedelics then, and to some degree, the way we think about them today. And he did a very interesting kind of tango dance of, like, spiritual and not spiritual. You know, naturalism and more than just psychology. Uh, and this talk really shows him at the point when he's still a, a, a professional psychologist, but he's starting to dissolve. Like, it's start, he can't really hold on to it anymore, but the way he thinks about it, I think, is really key to understanding not just the subject, but, but psychedelics in the 60s in general. So, at that point, like a lot of people in that, in, that, in that time, Leary thought about psychology or social situations in terms of the metaphor of the game. You know, we, what we do is we play games. You know, I'm the game of the guy who knows something. And so I'm standing up here and I'm playing this game and that structures you as like an audience. So you're playing the audience game where you kind of listen and you get a little bored and you get a little sleepy and then you listen again. You think about what you're going to do tomorrow and then you listen again. And, you know, so we're, we have these games that structure our personality. So we think we're doing something when it's actually the game that's working. So Leary starts to take this model, which is obvious in sort of t- typical human interaction and he starts to expand it into larger and larger, more kind of metaphysical principles. So he talks about how ordinary perception and even science are structured by the subject-object game, this game of of dualism. Uh, And uh, while the most treacherous game of all is the ego game, that there is an I, that there's some kind of agency, some kind of decider. So defining the mystic or visionary as the one who, quote, sees clearly the game structure of behavior he outlines this pragmatic program of what he calls applied mysticism. And this program includes the idea that great trauma can shatter the gamesmanship out of you and free you up to play better games. In a way, in a nutshell, this is the whole 60s, 70s approach to psychology. You see it in, in you know, encounter groups. You see it in drug use. You see it in ide- changing ideas of madness. This is the idea that you can intensify things so much that you break down. You have a traumatic experience. You have a death experience. And out of this, you not only see more clearly the games you normally play, but you free yourself up for uh, better games. Another quote. The mystic experience is the non-game, the meta-game experience. Uh, So here he's sort of mashing up social psychology and comparative Mysticism, And this is part of the other thing that's happening to Leary. So as he starts to have these experiences and think about these things, he wasn't traditionally interested in religion or mysticism at all. But as he's doing this, he's kind of going, oh, what's going on? In some ways, this religious language is appropriate for these experiences. And he goes on and he meets people. He meets Houston Smith. Anybody knows who Houston Smith is? Right, just a couple of folks. But he was a very important mid-century 
a guy who talked about the the secret connection between all religions, a point of view that's known as perennialism. This is the idea, and Huxley also, Aldous Huxley very much shared this idea, and it really structures his thought. It's the idea that behind all the different mystical paths, all the different religions of the world, there really is one shared experience. And so it doesn't really matter in some sense, and in some sense all of them are talking about the same thing. And if you have this point of view, you're sort of encouraged to make connections. You say, well, you know, the Zen Satori really isn't that different than Meister Eckhart, even though from a more traditional or critical historical point of view, they're totally different. They don't have anything to do with each other. But no, no, no. Behind the surface of the cultural differences, there's some core experience, and that's the idea of perennialism. It's an idea that was very important to Houston Smith, who was a professor in in Cambridge, and was friends with Leary and also uh, was one of the participants in the Good Friday experiment, which some of you uh, know about, which had to do precisely with how psychedelics seem to be able to produce something like religious experience, at the very least a simulation of religious experience. So Leary's already getting kind of excited about this, um, and he... Uh, runs into Huxley not that long before Huxley dies, and Huxley says, hey, man, we need a guide. He didn't, of course, Aldous Huxley didn't say, hey, man, that's me. But, uh, but Huxley's like, we need a, a guidebook for uh, the psychedelic experience. We need a way for you to like, put this in a kind of language that, that, that can be helpful for people who are going through this. Why don't we do it with the Tibetan Book of the Dead? So that she comes from Huxley. So then Larry's like, great, let's do it. Uh, and so after this, uh, this experience, when they're, uh, this is Alpert in Ram, future Ram Dass, um, his glasses are back, you know, the thick black glasses, they're back. So he's, he's on it there. Um, so what Leary said is, hey, okay, okay let's take the book, you know, and, and there's a quote from Metzner where he says, Metzner goes, Leary said, let's take the text of the Tibetans and strip the particular cultural and religious language and rewrite it as a manual. I mean, the, you know, the more the more clear example of straight-up appropriation you couldn't get, as well as a perennialist idea, that it's the local and specific religious and cultural language that you can get out of the way in order to get to this meaty core experience, this experience that he believed was replicated in, uh, in the psychedelic experience. So in a way, Leary was lining up with Evans Wentz, with Carl Jung, and saying, this thing about the dead body and saying it to the dead body and that the spirit is actually in these other realms, that's just a facade for an experience that happens in life that we can experience as living people going through a simulated death and rebirth process, just like they did in the mystery religions, just like they do in, in, the, in, in Tantra, and just like we do now with our new thanatological uh, uh, chemicals. So... Uh, this, what's really interesting about this, thinking about it, is that in, you know, in some ways we can say, okay, this is totally typical Western colonialist appropriation of the mysteries of the other people and where you change it and use it for your own purposes. Totally clear that that's what's going on. But if you're interested, as I am, in the history of religions and how religions change and how they particularly how they change when they encounter one another, it's harder to simply discount it for that reason. And one of the great examples of this is the way in which the Tibetans appropriated Buddhism. 
So Buddhism grows up in, in, in India and, you know, northern India, you know, flourishes for a couple of centuries. Uh, you know, it's, by this point, it's been going on for about, about 800, 900 years when it makes its way into Tibet. And it's sort of a complicated story, but it shows up and then it kind of goes away and then it comes back with a vengeance. Um, and so we can look at the, this process of what actually happened there. What was transformed? How did the Tibetans appropriate? And there are other scholars who look at this and go, look, you know, we might think that Leary is kind of ridiculous, but if you go back to Tibet at the same time, you find the same kind of thing. You have a bunch of of crazies with their visions and scholastics who are trying to hold on to the old texts and keep them faithful and all sorts of strange politics of different ways of interpreting these things. And so what we find is that the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or really the texts that are represented by the Tibetan Book of the Dead, are themselves a perfect example of how this transformation happens as one uh, cultural group's religion gets appropriated and transformed by another group. In this case, how how, uh, Indian Buddhism gets transformed into Tibetan Buddhism, and particularly how a new indigenous and arguably shamanic dimension enters into Buddhist Tantra through the mediation of this transformation that the Tibetans are doing, represented again in no better place than the Tibetan uh, Book of the Dead. So there's uh, two ways to, I'll go back to this one, there's two ways that the Tibetan Book of the Dead introduces something that we don't find in the, in the Indian Tantric or Indian Buddhist texts. One of them is the bardo of reality. One of them is the idea that after death, whether you like it or not, you get to confront the whole panoply of gods and monsters. You're going to get it one way or the other. Hope, it, hope you can hold on. Hope you can keep your shit together. Um, and this kind of model is much more similar. And, you know, and again, we're in this speculative realm where you can't really prove it because there's not text. And we're talking about things a thousand years ago. And you know, scholars are very cautious about it. But the only place you really see this kind of model is if you look at, 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 at anthropological records of Siberian shamanism. If you're familiar with Murcia Eliade's book Shamanism, which was itself a, a kind of uh, perennialist book about how this one idea of shamanism coming out of Siberia can apply to lots of different groups, and he was finding these regular patterns. And one of the patterns is this precisely this kind of after-death experience where you're guided by the shaman through these different uh, domains of gods and monsters. So that's one of the ways that uh, the Tibetan indigenous shamanic culture changed these materials as it went into Tibet. The other way is the role of the guide itself. The idea that there is a guide, someone who's speaking, someone who's directly addressing the dead person. Again, we don't find this in the Indian uh, texts. And there's some evidence that if you go back to some of the earliest uh, written materials we have from Tibet, that there's something uh, uh, indigenous going on with this notion of a guide. Here's a, here's a quote from a text that is like 400 years earlier than the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, again, now listen. You who are deceased, fickle impermanence, the real nature of the whole world has at this time befallen you. So there's this idea of a guide, of a kind of shamanic guide. And what, what uh, Leary et al. do in some ways is to transform this figure into the idea of a psychedelic guide. The idea that to 
maximize your psychedelic experience, you need a guide. You need someone there. You need someone who can shape it for you or who can create a, what we would call now, a sort of safe container. Now, at this point, the Leary folks are pretty big on, they have a pretty big interpretation of their role as uh, guides. And if reading the manual is kind of funny because they're really kind of, in a way, amping their own sort of ability to see what's going on because the guide isn't just the man Leary or the man Metzner. And the way they did their groups, they did their, their things collectively where different people would take on the role of the, the person who was recording what was going on where everybody else tripped their balls off. And everyone, you know, they were mostly balls, I'm afraid. It was not mostly, mostly guys doing this, this kind of thing at the time. And, um, but it's not just the people who are guides. The manual itself, the book, the psychedelic experience, the book, was also a guide, just the same way as the Tibetan Book of the Dead is in some sense a script for a human person to read to the dead, but it's also itself a guide. The text itself is also a guide. And the Leary folks took this to the nines not only by saying, hey, you can use this book to help shape your LSD trip, but by saying, if you want to, you can actually record the prayers on magnetic tape and play it back for yourself when you're, when you're in your experience. So there's this weird kind of almost cybernetic idea about, uh, uh, about the guide and about um, using it in order to uh, wake up. So I want to talk a little bit now about how uh, Leary rewrites these phases. How do these traditional basic stages of the bardo get rewritten um, in the, the book, The Psychedelic Experience. The kinds of uh, initial physical symptoms, the ones that Hoffman described, that, in, that discomfort, the sense of shaking, that, that, that sort of uh, physical challenge, um, for, for Leary, these become signs heralding transcendence. And if fears and attachments are released, what he calls the period of ego loss, or non-game ecstasy dawns. This is the clear light, according to Leary, who defines liberation as the nervous system devoid of mental conceptual activity. So again, we can see the way that Leary is like playing both ends against the middle in terms of like appropriating not just Tibetan materials, but, but spiritual, supernatural, transcendental ideas, and then naturalizing them, bringing them into psychology, bringing them into an idea of the nervous system running various psychological programs. But this idea of, the, the, of true ego loss or uh, non-game ecstasy, according to him, is very difficult uh, to maintain. And uh, the personal and genetically inherited dispositions of most people drive them into the second and third bardos, which he calls uh, periods. During the period of hallucinations... The, this mandala or group of peaceful and wrathful deities, the gods and monsters I talked about, is recast as a hallucinatory parade of complexes like, quote, the retinal circus or the vibratory waves of external unity. Here the Leary text, which both samples and remixes the actual language of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, simply repeats the traditional Tibetan exhortation to remember the inherent lack of substance in the images and experiences. This is an amazing point. 
Because as I'm saying, he takes this material that is profoundly embedded in a supernatural, transcendental, mystical model, if you want to call it mystical, of other levels of reality where there actually is an afterlife, and he's naturalizing it. He's bringing it into a more psychological language. But in this sense, he's saying almost exactly the same thing. Because in the traditional Tibetan context, what they're saying is, just remember... Your mind is making this. Your mind is making the gods. Your mind is making the monsters. And if you can really see that these things don't have any inherent existence, you really see that your mind is making, not even your mind, the mind is making it, then you have a chance at liberation. And here's how Leary uh, uh, plays with that, with that idea. In one of the redacted Tibetan prayers, that means it's a Tibetan prayer that he transformed, that, that, that they give at the end of the text. Here's some prayers that you can use during your trip. Um, it goes like this. Voidness cannot injure voidness. None of the peaceful or wrathful visions, blood-drinking demons, machines, monsters, or devils exist in reality, only within your skull. And most of that is from the Tibetan language, not the machines and not the skull. But in some sense, he's saying the same thing. And there's an important point, which may sound a little bit academic, but I think is, is more important to this. One of the big criticisms uh, that someone might make of this Leary work is to say, look, not only are you appropriating, but you're appropriating with this perennialist idea that beneath all the different cultural formations, there is just this one sort of experience that we all have access to. There's an es essential human mind and this perennialist idea is clearly false. It's clearly a superimposition, a kind of colonialist construct where we say, oh, everyone's really talking about the same thing, and by the way, I know what that same thing is. So it's a very kind of problematic approach. But Leary's actually doing something a little bit more complicated than that, which is not saying that there is this fundamental reality behind all of these differences. He's saying that the fundamental reality that's behind all these differences is the deconstruction of reality is the, the, the inability to see the game as a game any, or as, as reality anymore, to see the, through it, to, to deconstruct the self, to deconstruct our ideas about who we are, about what world we in are, or what demons are, what machines are. It's all in your skull. So it's a little bit more interesting and a little bit more complicated and potentially a little bit more what was actually going on uh, uh, in the first place. Um, Tibetan scholars are, argue about the usefulness of the term shamanism to describe what's going on in indigenous Tibetan religion. Um, it's a tough word. It clearly says something. It clearly helps us understand what's similar about very, very different phenomena from Siberia to South America to North America to Africa. There, people talk about shamans. Are they really the same? Are they really different? How can, we, how can we really talk about it? So people are very wary about using the term. Some people are okay with it. One of, one of the, these guys, Gregory Samuel, points out that the shamanism, that the indigenous elements of Tibetan culture that, that last within Buddha, Tibetan Buddhism aren't just the kind of low stuff like village necromancers and astrology and possession rituals and, and the sort of like you know, village fringe stuff outside of the monasteries. What he says is that some of the most highest teachings, particularly the high Tantra teachings, are themselves really transformation of these shamanic currents rather than specifically Buddhist currents. And he has a wonderful description of the shaman 
that is so Leary-like. I just, I just got to read it. So much coming from the same place that Leary's coming from when he talks about non-game ecstasy. So this is Samuel's talking about uh, the shaman's death and resurrection show. The training of the shaman involves the acquisition of control over a series of different potentialities uh, or modes of operation within human experience. If shamans are to operate with these modes or deal with the spirits, in other words, they have to acquire some kind of further mode or state from which they can view them and balance them within themselves and in their social context. In the process, they have to transcend or go beyond the normal experience of the world taken for granted within their social and cultural context. This is the meaning of the symbolic death that forms a common part of shamanic training and initiation. So in a way, he's saying the same thing. He's saying in order for the shaman to function as a healer, as someone who can balance the energies both within a social community and between the community and its external environment, whether it's what we call nature or whether it's animals or whether it's other people, that in order to really do that, the shaman has to be able to step outside of that local reality to find some way of breaking down the self, of breaking down normal identifications in order to gain a kind of meta-perspective or a meta-game in uh, uh, Leary's language, a meta-game perspective. So in this sense, Leary, and possibly even what was going on with some of these characters, isn't really captured by this idea that there's some essential nature to human beings, and that's why all these things, when you boil them down, Zen is like Eckhart, and we're all kind of doing the same thing. What they're really saying is that we all have the same possibility of deconstructing uh, our local uh, realities. And uh, I want to end with just talking a little bit about how the, uh, the influence of this book um, was marked on psychedelic history and up to today. Because the psychedelic experience doesn't hold up well. If you read it, it's very dated, it's very ponderous, it's kind of arrogant, it's kind of uh, sort of Germanic in this weird way. And the, you know, the way that we remember Huxley's Doors of Perception or uh, Alan Watts's Joyous Cosmology, you know, these are classics. They're very beautiful. They still speak to us in a way. The, the, the psychedelic experience, it's a little bit harder to track. And in fact, all of its authors at various points kind of distance themselves from what they had done, partly because the appropriation is so obvious, partly because they get so much wrong about Tibetan Buddhism, partly because it's so clearly kind of crazy in some sort of way. But I think we, we sort of do ourselves a disservice by, by forgetting it, uh, because it really is quite significant, not only in terms of an interesting example or a, a, a very significant example of how uh, tantric and Buddhist ideas came into the West and indeed reminds us that the whole history of Buddhism in the West, the whole thing in the post-war period, as Buddhism really starts to become popular, is inextricable from psychedelics. Most Buddhist teachers don't want you to know that. They don't want to talk about that. Most Buddhist historians of Buddhism in America, uh, increasingly they do acknowledge this because they have to, because it's true, but it's another one of those, you know, sweep the drugs under the carpet uh, kind of moves. And so that's part of the forgetting of this book is forgetting of this, this kind of um, dimension of it. But even more specifically is that people in that period of time, so the book comes out in 1964. The 63 and 64 are just the years when LSD is leaking out of the lab. This means out of the research centers, 
and out of the kind of elite Hollywood psychotherapeutic circles where it was circulating among, you know, uh, stars and uh, sort of more hoity-toity folk and becoming available to the masses, becoming available to crews like Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. But it's also before it becomes scheduled and kind of goes underground and really begins to massify. So it's a very... A sweet spot, 64 to 66, 67 in, in psychedelic history in, a, in, a, in the United States anyway. And this book was fundamental, fundamental. You talk to people from that era, almost everyone's like, oh yeah, we took that book really seriously. So there was this period where this book helped shape what it meant to, to do psychedelics. Maybe psychedelics aren't about, maybe it doesn't help. Uh, but it was the case that the, particularly the idea of ego death, that the point of psychedelics was to have a traumatic ego death and that this was going to give you what you wanted was really kind of part of the lore. That's what you were doing. That's what you expected to have happen or hoped to have happen. Later on, people were like, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe this heavy-handed guide stuff really isn't so helpful. And by the 70s, psychedelic guides and therapists and people working with people as guides you know, became, developed much more minimal methods, although some of them still emphasize this kind of traumatic uh, sort of rupture. But at that point, it was really uh, uh, very uh, significant. Here, this is just one example of this guy, you, just as kind of evidence for this, John Griggs. And John Griggs in the early 60s was one of these, you know, he was like basically a thug, uh, a San Jose grifter, greaser, thief, uh, who, you know, was partying and taking a lot of speed and riding motorcycles and he had his whole crew. And then he heard that there was some, I think he, then he moved, I can't remember when he went to the South End, but at some point he moved South. But he heard about this uh, psychiatrist who, no, that's right, he was from Orange County. Excuse me, I'm mixing up with two stories, but he's, the characteristic is the same. He heard about this like shrink who's got a, a store of acid. So he went up and he stole his LSD, brought it back down, took it, and had a complete life-changing religious experience. So much so that he took the rest of the acid back. He gave it back to the guys. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then started wearing flowers and, you know, became this guy. And when they would do acid, he turned on everybody and he ended up being the head honcho behind the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was extremely important in terms of the distribution of LSD in California and actually throughout the United States. Orange Sunshine came to the Brotherhood. They brought in a lot of the... Uh, Afghani hash, and so they were a very important drug distributor, but really took it seriously. They meant it, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. It wasn't just the name of, of, a, of a drug gang. And when he did drugs or he wanted people to do it, it was all about the Leary experience and, and, and this sort of uh, you know, psychedelic experience. So it's, it's important to see it historically, this book, and the connections that it makes. And again, the way in which it's not just some facile appropriation or simple exoticism, the way we see exoticism now, you know, vis-a-vis shamans in, in South, South America. Oh, they know everything or whatever. Oh, let's just take their culture and try to run with it. It wasn't just that. Uh, and, and it was also recognizing something inherent in the Bardo concept, that this idea of a between, of moving between states, and more so that these betweens resonated so that my orgasm or even my sneeze could resonate with my death and therefore be used as preparation or as confrontation or experiencing that death, at least in a simulated sense, was just ideal for psychedelics. Because that's what it, you know, in a way, that's what it's doing. That what's, that, that's, that, that's part of its potential, of its inherent potential, not just because we have expectations. It's part of the process, I believe, itself. 
And then the other way that that's manifesting now, I, I had an image, but I, it, didn't, it didn't show up. Uh, it was a picture of the sort of uh, a therapy room at Johns Hopkins when they were doing this uh, psilocybin studies about 10 years ago that led to the 2006 uh, study that came out that basically proved what we already knew from the 60s, which is that under certain circumstances, psychedelics can produce profound religious experiences. Um, and... But more importantly than, than that study are a number of studies that are happening now that have to do with using psychedelics for people facing the end of life. So people who are, who are cancer patients, people who have tremendous anxiety and, and fear, and using psychedelics as a way to ameliorate that, to get them prepared, to get us all prepared for what's going to happen, whether we want it to or not. And I think these studies are incredibly profound. Not only because they, they seem to show that this is, can really work, you can take people who are naive about drugs and don't have drug experience, and it's not really a drug anymore. It's a medicine, it's a healing agent, it's a, a pathogen, whatever you want to call it, uh, can take psychedelics, and in the proper structure, the proper setting, and uh, set and setting are part of the story, and I'll, I'll, I'll wind up with that in just a second, um, uh, with the, in the right situation, they can really change. They can really grapple with these fears and, and move forward. But what I really like about the mortality psychedelic studies is because it's a wonderful wedge. It's a wonderful foot in the door. Why? Because we're all in that position. We're all terrified before death. I'm terrified. You're probably terrified. You probably spent a lot of your time avoiding it. Oh, distract. Oh, get up. No, no, no. Nope, not going to happen today. Nothing's happening today. Nope. And... So in some sense, we're all there with the cancer patient who gets the news or the person who's experiencing extreme anxiety. And once we kind of recognize that, I would like to think in a sane future that this will enable all of us to be able to access these things in more open uh, context because we're all in the same plight. Uh, on the note on set and setting, that was just one little bit I wanted to, to, to throw in there is that in talking about the importance of the, of the psychedelic experience within psychedelic culture and indeed culture in general, is that the psychedelic experience was also the vehicle for the very idea of set and setting, which is the most consistent, necessary, profound, and in some ways under-theorized, meaning people don't quite recognize the full consequences of, of the concept uh, within and without psychedelic culture, uh, within the whole history of talking about these things in the West. Set and setting is, is set front and center. And the psychedelic experience, the book about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, is the place where the idea of set and setting is sort of re released uh, and introduced uh, into the world. So with that, I think I will close, and I'm hoping we're going to be able to have some, uh, some fun questions. So thanks so much for your attention. It's a little hot in here. Let's go. All right. All righty. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, you talked a bit about perennialism versus appropriation, and I heard you saying uh, that maybe this wasn't appropriation because it actually was inherent, or at other times um, that it wasn't appropriation because it was talking about removing your attachment to reality altogether, so it wasn't even one specific version of reality to appropriate. Um, but I was just wondering what you see 
as bad appropriation in contrast mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. to like maybe shed light on how this is. Oh, that's, a, that's a good question. I would, I'd probably clarify it a little bit, which is that I would never deny that this is appropriation. It is. Okay. It is like going, taking, you know, uh, cut and pasting. I mean, literally, like if you read what they do, like they'll like quote a whole paragraph from Evans Wentz and then just, you know, pluck it out. Like uh, in the traditional account, the, the soul wanders for 40 days and they just like pull it out and put in eight hours because that's an LSD trip. So, I mean, it's sort of ridiculous. And if, by the way, if anybody wants to go, feel free to, to, to leave. Um, so they, they are doing that. But I just want to say that it's more complicated than that, that those, other, those things are also happening. And the question of appropriation is a very difficult one, you know. And um, I do think that uh, the, the psychedelics change the discussion a little bit because – if we're going to put on a naturalist hat, like not mystical hat, we all have the same nervous system. We all really do. There are some generalities about human beings across cultures. And where that line ends is very controversial. You know? and, and so people who don't like the, the universalism, don't like perennialism, will insist that there's very few things. You know, we all have arms and legs. We, we exist in time. And there's very few things that we can really talk about and agree, agree on, whereas other people are more expansive. I think mystical experience to some degree and psychedelic experience, but only to some degree, but to some degree does make us talk, does force us to talk about those universals because it is a compound that is entering into our nervous system and being read and interpreted in different ways. Those different ways make a big difference, and you can't universalize about people see God or people don't see God or it proves that God exists or proves they're an afterlife. I don't think anything like that is really uh, available. Um, so it's, you know, uh, there is a lot of bad appropriation. There's a lot of ways of, of uh, misunderstanding to your own detriment uh, what's going on. I'm right, I mean, right now there's all sorts of ways you can see the way people are looking at uh, South American uh, shamanism and misunderstanding it in a way that then becomes available for uh, people within that culture to reflect back a misunderstanding and you know you get this really weird process going but on the other hand that's how human culture works and that's particularly how, how religions evolve when they encounter each other there's misunderstanding creative misunderstanding and we might say that's bad because we want things everyone to control their meanings or you might say, that's just the way it goes. In fact, it's actually kind of cool because it's part of the creative uh, process. The problems really arise when there's an imbalance of, of power, which in this sense, there kind of was, uh, more so probably in an indigenous context. It's so really complicated. Who gets the power? Is it the incoming tourist? Is it the person? On the other hand, white people are actually going like, there's wisdom in the forest. Let's go talk to the indigenous people. That's actually kind of cool. The indigenous people get to be the ones you know. But... At the same time, that's really problematic. So it's a, it's a very complicated uh, it's a very complicated situation. But I do think it's important to talk about universals, not only in terms of mystical experience, but also in terms of dream. We all dream. We all have that dream as Bardo. Oh, or was oh I thought that was real. Oh no, it's not real. Everybody does that, and that's an important point of universal connection that I think the Bardo idea is really reflecting as well. But to suggest one further element that I don't want to see lost in, our, in the mainstreaming language, which is that if, you know, if pressed against the wall, even with my naturalist hat on, I do believe that there are, there's something in us that, ha- that we could call energy that has a weird, not quite a readable character, can't quite get it on a machine, 
but that it has patterns and it can be constructed in relationship to different cultural forms and that that stuff becomes apparent and visible and, and, and malleable on psychedelics and that it is not different, I won't say it's the same, but it is not different than aspects of tantric energy work and the visualizations that are associated with it. So that there really is some kind of resonating resemblance that's going on that, that makes a connection between these things that's more than just cultural symbolism. Okay, thank you very much. Really appreciate your attention. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I hope that Eric's talk sparked as many thoughts and questions for you as it did for me. For one thing, uh, I'd never heard anyone talk about the change in consciousness that comes about when we sneeze. (laughs) I guess that uh, may not be too big a deal with most people, but I, for one, have always enjoyed sneezing. And I've always enjoyed getting high. (laughs) Maybe there's a connection there that I should spend a little more time thinking about. Also, uh, we just heard Eric mention the legendary group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And I suspect that many of us have read a book titled Orange Sunshine that was published in 2010. While I did find it to uh, be an interesting read, my friend Nick Sand uh, didn't think that it was a very accurate book. And uh, Nick should know, because along with Tim Scully, he produced over three and a half million hits of Orange Sunshine, as uh, he and Tim were the chemists, uh, alchemists actually, for the Brotherhood. And if you're interested in Nick's stories, you'll find several podcasts featuring him here in the salon. Now, I'm sure that you also want to hear more from Eric, and I'm happy to say that he hosts the Expanding Mind podcast, and I'll link to it in the program notes. In fact, uh, as soon as I've posted today's podcast, I'll uh, be listening to his July 7th program where he interviewed Kevin Kelly. And if you don't know who Kevin Kelly is, uh, well, where have you been these last few decades? (laughs) Among other things, Kelly has been a key figure involved with the Whole Earth Catalog, The Well, and, well, a little magazine called Wired. So for our fellow saloners who have already made it through all of my podcasts here, you might want to go to Eric's site where you're going to find many, many more programs that I'm sure are going to interest you. You know, I get a lot of requests for more talks by people like Kat Harrison, and, well, she's one of Eric's guests as well. Actually, uh, as I look through the list of his programs, I've found several dozen that I can hardly wait to listen to. And the link to his podcast might be hard to remember if I just read it here, but I subscribe to it through my podcast app by searching for Expanding Mind. Now, you may also want to check out Eric's main website at www.technosis.com, where you can scroll through the summaries of Eric's most recent podcasts. And if you haven't yet read Technosis, well, uh, what are you waiting for? In preparation for uh, today's podcast, I got out the old and battered copy that I bought after uh, Terrence McKenna recommended it to me. And uh, in reviewing it, I find that it's still very much in point and well worth reading. But you don't have to trust only my judgment. Uh, Here are a few short quotes about technosis by some people whose opinions I've always respected. Eric Davis sits on my bookshelf alongside William James, Terrence McKenna, and Karen Armstrong. Douglas Rushkoff said that. Eric Davis has written one of the best media studies books ever published. And that's from Bruce Sterling. And this one, 
Eric Davis's compendious recitation of the history of communications technology dominates the discursive landscape of techno-exegesis like a Martian war machine. <laughs> and who do you think would use such language? Of course, it was Terence McKenna. Now uh, it's your turn to expand your mind even further by listening to some of Eric's podcasts and reading some of his books. Just to give you a sense of the wide range of Eric's writing, here's what Blender Magazine had to say about Eric's book, the one that's titled Led Zeppelin IV, which is uh, the album where we all heard Stairway to Heaven for the first time. And here's why Blender called Eric's book one of the 40 greatest rock and roll books. And I quote, The most intellectually inspired and flat-out fun of Continuum's ongoing 33 and a third series of pocketbook album appreciations, Critic Davis's adventurous treaty decodes every magical property embedded within rock's most geeked-out masterpiece. <laughs> well, that should be about enough to keep you busy until next week, <laughs> when I plan on uh, talking about California's Prop 64 and uh, marijuana legalization. But here's the headline. If you're inclined to vote in favor of this proposition, you most definitely need to read the entire 60-plus pages of this insanely horrible bill. And if you're a medical marijuana patient in California, well, you'd better begin searching out a local underground grower right now, because among other things, it eliminates Prop 215 that medical marijuana patients have been relying on for a long time. If this new proposition passes, uh, well, we're going to be in for some dark days out here on the coast. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>